in our house, we play a game called Jungle Speed. Have you heard of it? It is a game of pure violence. It's meant to be a card game, but it usually ends in bloodshed around about our house. Um, this is a card game, and it's a little bit like Snap, that when you, when you flip over a card, if it matches, then you have to kind of snatch the totem thing that's sticking up in the middle of the table. It's all about reaction. It's all about speed. The quickest wins. Now, that's brilliant if you're in that game. But when it comes to relationships, that's not quite so good. That's not how we should be doing things. I think, as I've read this passage that we're going to read this morning, I see Jesus responding to situations. Not reacting, but responding. And I think we can learn from that today. So that's where we're headed. Um, have you ever been to the doctors and you go in and she says to you, I'm going to give you some pills for, for this thing that you've got. And then come back in a week and, and we'll see how you're getting on. We'll see how you're doing. And so you do so. You take pills for a week, faithfully, every single day, according to the instructions. And then you come back a week later and the doctors will say one of two things to you. She will say, oh, you are reacting to the medicine. Or she will say, you are responding to the medicine. There's a big difference. Which one would you rather be? Would you rather be the person who reacts in the instant or respond? In today's passage in Mark, uh, we, we reach this huge turning point. We're, we're back in the King and His Cross series. We're in the Gospel of Mark. And we're at this huge turning point now where uh, things are kind of ramping up. Jesus is being arrested. He's about to be brought before the Sanhedrin. This is the, the kind of a, like the last stretch towards the cross now. And we read how Peter instinctively reacts to this horrible situation and how it kind of all spirals away from him from there. And in contrast, we see Jesus, who in the midst of this huge turning point in history, instinctively responds well. In the face of betrayal, false accusations, injustice, misrepresentation, abandonment, humiliation, and not just with the threat of torture, beatings, and death, but the knowledge of torture, beatings, and death, Jesus still managed to model composure, grace, and the ability to bring the correct response. So we see Peter who reacts, and we see Jesus who responds. So we're going to turn to our scripture. It's going to come up on the screen. Does anyone need a Bible? If you need a Bible, stick your hand up, and there's some at the sides. We will pass them to you. Nope, we're all good. Okay, our passage is from Mark 14, verses 43 all the way to 65. I am going to kind of ad-lib the first part, and then we'll read the second part, if that's okay. So to set it up, we see the Garden of, or we are in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Jesus has taken his disciples to go and pray. He's taken all the 12 with him, and all the 12 are sitting here. Then he takes the three, Peter, James, and John. He takes them a little bit further on, and then he himself goes a little bit further to pray. And into that situation comes a crowd. And they're armed to the teeth, and they're coming to arrest Jesus. And Judas comes up, and he kisses Jesus. Now, this was a signal 
as this is the guy that you need, guys need to arrest. It was a symbol of the of, of a, a student going to their teacher, their rabbi, but it was a kiss of betrayal. Judas had been one of the twelve, one of that those inner circle guys. He was one of them. And now he was betraying his master, bringing treason with a kiss. It's dark, it's late, it's chaos. There's kind of shadows bouncing around from the torches that they would have brought with them. There's noise. It's noisy, it's disorientating. And then a guard seizes Jesus. And Peter, he instantly reacts and he whips out his sword. And I have to ask myself what on earth Peter was doing with the sword. But he whips out the sword and cuts off the, the servant's ear. He reacts. But Jesus calmly responds. He heals the ear and then he turns to his captors. And at that point, everyone flees and that betrayal continues and it deals another blow that even those who were sold out to him have left. And so the scene shifts to the palace of the high priest and so we will read from verse 53. There it is, there it is. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And there he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. But we heard him say, I will destroy the temple made with human hands, and in three days will build another not made with hands. But yet even their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard this blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. And then some began to spit on him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophesy. And the guards took him, and they beat him. So here we, are, here we are. We find Jesus in the middle of this impromptu trial. It was actually one of many trials that he faced. His other gospels say that he went to Annas, who was the old high priest before Caiaphas. They went to him first before this incident. And then from here, he would go to Pilate, and then to Herod, and then back to Pilate again. This trial seemed very informal. The narrative kind of describes this, the high priest doing everything wrong. He wasn't following protocol. It was being held at night and in his home, when usually the Sanhedrin meet during the day and in a very public place. The market hall where they meet is big enough to, to, to have all 70 of the Sanhedrin in there. 
some scholars say that maybe they were not all there at this trial. There doesn't seem to be any legal protocol being followed. The council didn't seem to be interested in the truth. Caiaphas, the high priest, had already made up his mind before Jesus even walked in the door, before he'd heard the testimonies, and before Jesus had even had a chance to defend himself. They're trying to satisfy themselves that their case will stand up. There are false accusations made, but the eyewitnesses can't get their stories straight. And under Jewish law, you needed to have two flawless testimonies that exactly matched each other. And without that, if it fell down, it fell out. The Sanhedrin were getting very nervous. So they bring more people forward, those who are claiming that Jesus had said something blasphemous, that he would tear down their temple. But it's a complete misquote. What Jesus said was that they, not him, but they, would tear down this temple, his body, and that he would build this back up in three days. Completely misquoted. But even their stories were not aligned, and the Jewish leaders were actually starting to really panic. So Caiaphas starts interrogating himself. This is not the done thing. He's clutching at straws, trying to entrap Jesus with his own words. But Jesus responds with silence. Can you believe that? He's being slandered and misquoted, but yet he says nothing to defend himself. So in one last-ditch effort, Caiaphas asks him a direct question, probably knowing that Jesus regards himself as the Messiah. He comes right out and says, Are you the Messiah? To which Jesus responds with the truth. I am. And then he says this amazing statement that we should all be in awe of and we should all just fall to our knees and worship with what it brings to us. I'm just going to pop it up on the screen. He says, I am. This is, this is the word Yahweh, the name of God. He's basically saying, yes, I am the Son of God. And then he says, and you will see the Son of Man. And this would have been a phrase really well known to the Sanhedrin who are there. It's from Daniel chapter 7 where a prophecy speaks of the Son of Man being given all authority and all power because that's the Messiah. So Jesus is saying here, I am the Son of God, I am the Messiah. And then he says, and I am seated at the right hand of the Mighty One. This is a picture of kingship. We see Jesus as a king, but not just a king, but he's seated. He's victorious. He's already won victory. And coming on the clouds of heaven, another recognized image for the Sanhedrin. But this is written in a way that says, I'm not going to heaven on the clouds, but I'm coming from heaven. And we see at the beginning of Acts that he goes to heaven on the clouds. But this is him skipping forward a little bit, saying, I'm coming back. This is not the end. So in two sentences, we see Jesus as God, as king, with all the power, with all authority, victorious, and returning. Wow. And in the face of the mocking and injustice, name-calling, etc., etc., Jesus responds with that. And they all condemned him to death. In the midst of this, it's called the Passion of Christ, this last week before the cross, 
And in the middle of this, we can draw an incredible model of Jesus knowing God's plan, knowing when the time to be silent is, knowing when the time to speak up is, responding to life and not reacting to it. So sometimes when I've been mucking about with kids, you maybe have done something similar yourself. You know, you're, you're playing on the floor with your kids and suddenly they drop something on your head or they, they accidentally kick you or stab you or something like that. And, and like all you can do is, is react, right? It's just instinctive. You don't mean to, but it's like, ow, this hurts. You know, take the knife, you know? Um, you react. It's instant. You don't really mean it, but it hurts. So you react. You know, and Julie will come up to me and say, Mark, for goodness sake, we're only kids. It was an accident. You know, how's, how's Judah meant to know that that knife's going to... You know? And I'm like, okay, I know that. I know that. But, but like, it still hurts because it's instinctive. You just react to it. Another example, maybe, I remember playing uh, in one of our wonderful church football tournaments that's coming up. Speak to Keith if you want to uh, be part of our team. But I remember playing in one of these football tournaments and we were playing against this team who they were not really affiliated to a site. They were kind of like these kind of inner city guys who we were really just trying to get alongside. So we'd made up this team and invited them to play. I knew some of the guys. They were, they were, they were good guys. But when they played football, they were... Do you know what I mean? Like, they were just that little bit aggressive. And of course, what happened was... Um, and I, I'm not going to paint a very good picture of myself here, but, but when they started getting all up in my face, I just got all up in their face. They started being aggressive, so I started being aggressive. I, re I reacted to what they were doing. And it got to the point where the referee, bless him, had decided that uh, the, the rule of no sliding tackles just had to be abandoned just to keep the game flowing because they were just coming in left, right, and center from both sides. And I tell you this, we got absolutely thrashed. We got whipped. The anger went up, the red mist came down, and I reacted to the situation. Now, in contrast, I went and spoke a couple of games later to another one of our site pastors. I won't name him, but we'll call him Scoot Robinson. <laughs> and Scoot was chatting with me, and I said, hey, Scoot, how did you get on with that team? And he goes, fine. Beat them, 8 no. How? How did you do that? And he goes, well, I could see. I could see that they were being aggressive when they played football. I could see it. So we just smiled. We just said sorry when it wasn't even our fault. We just changed the way that we played. And the other team didn't know what to do. Oh, they oh, scored again. Oh. They literally just did not know what to do. I had reacted. Scoot had responded. Reacting is instinctive and done without forethought. And this is handy in a survival situation or jungle speed, but potentially inhibiting in everyday life. Whereas responding is conscious. It's taking a breath and thinking before you give an answer or reply. It's maybe understanding some of the facts and filtering out and also recognizing the effects of what you might be about to say before you say it. And in that chaotic moment in the garden, we see Peter reacting and we see Jesus responding. There's times when Peter should have just shut up, but he didn't. 
And there's times when we see Jesus when he should have maybe spoken up, but he didn't. And we see times when the opposite happened. I can't remember which way around I am now. But Abraham Lincoln and Mark Twain have both been credited with this saying. It says, it is better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to talk and remove all doubt. Historians can't decide which one of them actually said that, but I think God got there first. In Proverbs 17, 28, it says, Even a fool is thought wise if he keeps silent, and discerning if he holds his tongue. Sometimes a response is to say nothing at all. Ecclesiastes 3 says, There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be silent and a time to speak. Jesus was able to discern and respond in such a way that he could do that. Jesus had positioned his life to be able to move past reaction and into response. How? How do we learn how to do that? Well, our models are Peter and Jesus. Peter had been sleeping and Jesus had been praying. So, uh, not quite yet, Mark, but let's talk about like extreme situations for a, while, for a moment. Who in our society is a like a crisis responder, shout them out. Who, who would be classed as someone who's good in a crisis? Keith, paramedic? ER nurses, doctors, yeah? Police, brilliant. Firefighters, yeah. Police, no, not good in a situation, is that what you're saying? Not firefighters. Well, I'm about to talk about firefighters. Firefighters do not get taught how to react to fire type A or fire type B because such a thing doesn't exist. No fire is the same. No situation in our lives is the same. So rather than reacting or being taught how to respond to a particular type of fire, they're taught how to respond in situations. And they train and they train and they train until the right response instinctively comes out of them in that crisis moment. How do we overcome life struggles, move past disappointment and hurt and offense, or maybe wrongful accusations, or even persecution? How do we move past that? Well, we need to have a life bedded in God's presence. You can have the first point up. Now, you're going to be impressed today. They all start with P. This is going to be good. Presence and prayer. This is the foundation and the core of this training. Healthy, consistent, devotional life. Now, this is not the in-the-moment thing. This is like you can't be having an argument with someone and suddenly say, hang on a second. <laughs> I'm just going to go away and have a 15-minute quiet time. And then I'm going to come back and we'll finish this off, okay? You can't do that. You can't do that in the moment. This is before the moment. This is lifestyle. This is every day. This is having the foundation in the quiet space to be able to move into the situation and respond well. Jesus' model is this. Mark 1. Early in the morning, whilst it was still dark, he arose and went out and departed to a lonely place and was praying there. Mark chapter 6. After bidding them, the disciples, farewell, he departed to the mountain to pray. 
Luke 6. And it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And there are plenty more examples in the Gospels of Jesus just taking himself away, having a quiet moment, and praying and communicating with God. And his life was just that model of close communion with his Father. And closeness with God is the position that we need to start with. And what is a quiet time? You hear Christians talking about this all the time. I've been a Christian for many years, and no one's actually ever sat me down and taught me this is how you have a quiet time. But Jesus did. And his model is found in the book of Matthew, and it's often called the Lord's Prayer. And he starts off by saying this, when you pray, go into your room. This is Jesus' words. Close the door and pray to your Father who is unseen. And then your Father who sees what you've done in secret will reward you. Getting away by yourself, no distractions, you and God. And then this is how you pray. And he said the Lord's Prayer. But the Lord's Prayer breaks down like this. Praise God. Give him worship. Give him glory. Bring that first. Then describe your situations. And then invite God into those situations. Ask for forgiveness. I can't pray my feet today. Fourth, ask for forgiveness. And then pray for others. And when you've done all that, leave it in his hands. Give it over to him. A devotional lifestyle is simply being intentional and as consistent as possible about having a conversation with God. Listening for his voice through the reading of his Bible and speaking to him in prayer like we've just read. Now the two hardest parts of this are A, finding the time and B, keeping your head in the game as you're doing it. Martin Luther said this about praying. A good prayer should not be long or drawn out, but rather it should be frequent and passionate. I love that. Smith Wigglesworth, who was a very flamboyant man of faith, was asked about his prayer life, to which he replied, I never pray for longer than 15 minutes, but I don't go 15 minutes without praying. So I want to encourage us this morning to find our spaces and to be intentional and consistent about getting in God's presence. Are we listening to his voice? Are we inviting the Holy Spirit into our situations and inviting him for help? Uh, the Bible calls the Holy Spirit our helper. In John 14, it says, If you love me and keep my commands, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is here to help us. He is there. We just need to ask. James 1 verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom or discernment, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding any fault, and it will be given to you. The Holy Spirit can help us to determine that right blend of the, what, what's going on in the situation and our feelings and help us to make the right response. When we practice his presence, a reaction turns into a considered and compassionate response. Foundation is presence, getting in God's presence. The second one, a couple more P's for you. Pause and filter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Wait till you see point three. Look, I tried to come up with a P, but I couldn't, right? So I just made that, right? It works, okay? This is the in-the-moment stuff. This is, this is when you're having a situation. 
because the book of Psalms over and over again, and into Habakkuk as well, talks about the word Selah. Now, most scholars believe that this is a musical term that means to pause and to take a rest. And the Amplified Bible uh, interprets it to pause and think about that. So we need to practice pausing, taking a breath, and considering the situation. I remember being at my desk one day, and I was trying to do some work, and my computer was just on this go slow. It was just frustratingly slow. Even the littlest things that I was trying to do were just taking too long. Now, if anyone has ever seen me in a work situation, I shout at my computer screen quite a lot. It's just thing I do. It has absolutely no bearing or impact on what's going on, but it's just my outlet. It is my reaction. And I was getting incredibly frustrated. Nothing was going right. It was taking too long. Started slamming staplers on my desk. Like it was really, I was getting all uptight. The very next day, the same thing happened again. And by this point, my work colleagues walking out the room didn't want to deal with me. And so I stopped. And I went, hang on a minute. Let me look at the situation. What happened two days ago when everything was fine to now? There has to be something. There has to be a blockage. There has to be something in the way. And it transpired that I had installed a little switch that was to split the signal so two of our, our computers could run off the same signal. Brilliant in principle, but it wasn't fast enough to handle the process and was therefore a bottleneck and slowing everything down. And lo and behold, as soon as I took the blockage away, as soon as I filtered that off, everything worked out. Sometimes we have to stop, pause, and remove the blockage. Selah. Pause and think about it. Has someone offended you? Or shouted at you? Or blamed you for something? Pause. Are they hurt? Are they scared? Maybe they don't have all the facts. So pause. Selah. Was it an accident? What's the bigger picture here? Pause. Selah. Is it maybe just your pride that's being a little bit hurt? Pause. Selah. This passage in Mark doesn't quite say that Jesus paused. But if you read the same account in the Gospel of Matthew, you'll read Jesus when they were in the garden and Peter's just chopped off the guy's ear. You'll read that Jesus stopped and addressed Peter first and said, put your sword away, Peter. Luke records that he then heals Malchus's, the, the servant's ear. And then he turns to his captors and starts responding. That is not a reaction. It's not a knee-jerk instinct. It's a considered action and response to the situation. Pausing helps us to be aware of the situation. And you know what? By pausing, you've already not reacted. Reactions and responses can actually have the same outcome. But when you, when you stop just for a moment and you think about it, yes, you may still get to the same end result, but you've made a choice to respond to that. I also want to bring... 1 Corinthians to you now. This is this rolls off of Andy's. If you've ever been in, a, in something that Andy's led, he always says this. It's about prophecy. But he said, when you're trying to prophesy over someone, you think you've got a word, 
he says your response should be encouraging, comforting, and strengthening. That's what 1 Corinthians says about prophecy, but I think it's equally as relevant when thinking about responding. Is what you're about to say encouraging? Is what you're about to say comforting? Or is what you're about to say strengthening? And if it is, great. If it's not, maybe you need to think about it again. Pause and filter. And finally, the last P, Parthian shot. I was trying to come up with a word beginning with P that said reply or answer. I couldn't find one, but I did see the phrase parting shot, which has incredibly negative connotations. I'm aware of that. But hang fire with me for a little bit because this is good. I think so. In ancient Iran, or what was ancient Iran, there's this people called the Parthians. Now, they were a tough, equestrian, like horsey people, not unlike Genghis Khan's kind of Mongol kind of warriors. And they invented this uh, tactic, this strategy that was ended up called, called the Parthian shot, which is where we get our parting shot phrase from. So this was, um, now, when I was in Invururi, they, they, they did the horse sound, right? So you need to do that for me right now. Everyone, this is audience participation. So they're, they're on their war horses, right? Keep going, it's, a, it's thunderous, come on. Like, yeah, like, so, so they're doing this. And what they would do is they would feign, uh, feign, keep going, come on. We're all in this together. They would feign this retreat. So whether it's an actual retreat or whether it's, it's either defense or offense, it doesn't matter. They used to do this. And they would twist in their saddles. And unsuspecting, they would fire their arrows back the way towards their enemies. That's why it has a negative connotation. But let's just think about this just for a minute. There were no stirrups invented then. So these people are trying to control a galloping war horse with their knees whilst trying to stay on the horse. Pretty difficult. Not only are they doing that, but they're twisting around. Not only are they doing that, but they are launching a compound bow from a moving horse. Now, if you've ever had a shot at a bow, it's hard enough to hit a target when you're standing still on rock-solid ground, let alone a moving horse. However, there's a fraction of a moment when all four horse hooves are off the ground at the same time. And effectively, there's, it's flat. It's instant. And they turn, and they hold their breath in that instant and let loose. That is not a knee-jerk reaction. That is training and training and training and training and living it and living it and breathing it and breathing it and training, and training, etc., etc. It is their lifestyle, so that in the moment, the response is instinctive. And what I want to encourage us with today is that this has to be built up. This has to be our lifestyle. We have to get real and passionate about building that lifestyle of devotion when we're getting into God's presence, doing that training, training, getting into God's presence, just soaking it up. In Inverurri, we sang the song, set a fire down in my heart. But who sets the fire? We do. We set the fire. The Holy Spirit sparks that. 
but we set the fire down and we keep it fanned into flame. And how do we do that? Constantly and intentionally getting into his presence and reading his word and communicating and listening for what he wants to say so that when we're in the moment, our Parthian shot is the right response. It is the gold. It is the considered response. We need to keep pursuing his presence. And if this is the life that Jesus led, and if we have said yes to him as our leader, then we can have a life of response, not reaction. Because he promises to give us everything that we need to live a godly and spirit-filled life. We can do this. Response. An instinctive response. Let's stand.